0: Yeah, right. And now, coming to you for the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the somewhat inebriated Coot Street Podcast! Now, let's, expl- wait, 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 let's explain that. It's somewhat inebriated because
1: everybody who listens to the podcast for any length of time knows that it's my evening and your morning. So one of us is going to look really dissipated. <laughs> well, I have... I- I'm on my like third or fourth glass of wine of the day.
0: Of the day, (laughs) and of course, in in fairness, in the context, this is a a a morning. Well, actually, nearly lunchtime. Actually, Mm. it's it's a morning where I was up till three a.m. drinking with a with a pal of mine. So, I'm I'm traveling okay (laughs) overall. All right,
1: you you're you're doing much better than I would be doing the morning after I had an evening like that, and you're making me nostalgic for the times when I would do that. Um. And when you get to be my age, you learn tricks, by the way. A trick I learned from Brian Aldis, uh, who for years would be uh, either at ICFA or I'd see him at conferences in England. And he was always up, even well into his 70s, into his early 80s, uh, up until two or three. And then I finally realized that Brian disappears for about four hours every
0: afternoon (laughs) and takes a
1: long nap
0: and deliberately prepares himself. Well, let's face it. At most conventions – you know, what happens in the middle of the afternoon isn't really always the most interesting part. Well, of course not.
1: And, and he was not somebody that necessarily enjoyed sitting in the sun out, uh, mm. at the pool of So, so, but, but his point was he was trying to convince us, uh, that he was really much more virile than he actually was, I guess. I have to say, I speaking of,
0: <laughs> of conventions, I don't know if I yes. mentioned this to you, um, but, A week or two ago, maybe Daryl Schweitzer posted on social media that he'd stumbled across the program for the Second World Fantasy Convention, which was in Rhode Island in 1976 or something. And I have to say, on one hand, a much simpler convention than you see these days, two days, one stream of programming, come and see this or don't see anything. But on the other hand, wow, Gary, back in those days, you know, know, the the, the convention would be opened by Ted Sturgeon. You could see Fritz Leiber and Michael Moorcock arguing over swords and sorcery with Elsprag de Camp, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And you're going, it doesn't feel, and it's probably just a passage of time, doesn't feel like that kind of thing happens now just because Mm -hmm. the giants haven't quite emerged again or something.
1: Well, I I, I think that some have, but not legendary in that sense. You're talking about a generation that is Probably the generation before uh, the generation which is passing away now. The yeah. first World Fantasy I went to was one of the early ones in suburban Chicago, and I uh, I went to it because uh, Phil Farmer was a friend. And the first night I had a I had a student with me who was a fan, uh, and it was his first convention of any kind. And I invited him to dinner with what turned out to be Phil Farmer and Robert Block and Fritz Leiber and 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 me and the student. And I I was and the student and I were thinking. We're, we're just gonna listen. We're just going to see what <laughs> we can get these guys going. And yeah. it was absolutely, and you can't do that anymore.
0: Uh, um, no, I mean, there, if you're lucky, there are other versions of it in existence. And I would never say, you know, the, the the, the golden times are gone or anything, but certainly those feel from this point of view, like foundational times, if you like, when a particular version of the genre was being developed. Um, and they were the people who did it. I mean, Libra was there at the start of modern swords and sorcery, you know, well,
1: I think it's, but, but, but the,
0: the, the, the era that we're looking
1: at there from today's perspective must be like when I was,
0: yeah. a, oh, in, college yeah. I was in college.
1: A million years ago. I read memoirs, ago. memoirs of people who were in Paris in the twenties and they were hanging around with Hemingway and Stein and Fitzgerald and Morley Callahan and that sort of thing. And yeah, that's never going to come again. Um, and frankly, uh, to be honest, hanging out with Saul Bellow and John Updike and those people probably was never as much fun anyway. Uh, so there th- need to be a kind of attitude there too, and I think that may be gone. But it raises an interesting question that I had raised to you in an email, and I wanna, I wanna start off this by, um, asking you as my editor to, to start doing me a favor. Uh, because as many people know, Jonathan is the reviews editor of Locus. I write reviews for Locus, and Jonathan politely corrects misspellings of names and things like this, which I habitually do. I am going to ask you to stop me from using a single word. If you see me use this word in a review, cut it out and email me and tell me to do something else. And you know what the word is? The word the word is meat. Okay. 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 As in, okay, okay. Um, It's something that reviewers do. I don't ever want to do it. It's something now that promotional uh, letters from publishers do. I got a letter. I'm not going to tell you what publisher this is or what novel it's from, but the promo letter starts off, Station Eleven meets Never Let Me Go. What does that mean? (laughs) I mean, how much – it's novels aren't people they don't meet each other in other novels and i I see this all the time i see reviewers doing it i'm thinking uh and i was thinking okay snowpiercer is let's say it's cormac mccarthy's the road meets thomas the tank engine of course it's uh it's a completely arbitrary way of trying to get people to read books that they otherwise wouldn't read by connecting them with two other books that they probably haven't read either so I, okay. I don't want you I don't. I don't want you to let me ever say X book meets Y book because that doesn't happen. Books Fine, don't meet. Fine,
0: but you know what they're saying. You know what they're saying is that they're, 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 it's like blending a color palette, right? Mm-hmm. When red meets yellow, it becomes orange, which is the new black. I suppose. <laughs> I can, I can yeah, I guess you could go with that too. But okay. I mean we have one reviewer who every aside that he, that the reviewer writes is indeed. And I cut that out religiously because it's everywhere, like a nervous tick. Okay.
1: And, and, and all all reviewers, all writers have bad habits as a matter of fact. And and, and those things are things that you have to pay attention to as an editor. Yeah, I reckon. But the there are that's, habits. The one I'm talking about is a habit that's become a generic kind. Well, it is. Of thing, it is. Which is well,
0: there are all, all kinds of generic PR speak. I mean, look at the U.S. Constitution. It's basically, you know, generic PR speak. But um when I shouldn't have said that. That was bad. Okay. Uh But yeah, it course, is. Those you're are right. The card is so there. It, there you go. Uh, but you're. you're I mean, yeah, sure. G- generic PR speak has been f- pushed at us for so long that. We just regurgitate it without thinking. It's the same way people now frame, frame their own, uh, Facebook posts, uh, photos they put up as though they were some kind of amateur journalist or something because that's how the, the filter it comes through. So we, but, but I will, I will do my best, Gary, to stop you meeting anyone.
1: Well, the reason I, I, I think the, I think you're right. I think the issue behind that. Uh, is is one thing for marketing people because they're trying to reach two audiences. They figure, okay, this book sold a lot of copies and that book sold a lot of copies. So if this book has – that's all they're thinking of. Yeah. Um, I mean you, you won't ever say you – won't, you won't ever see a promo letter saying the, that this utterly failed novel, which I like, meets this other utterly <laughs> failed novel because that's not going to sell any copies. But it does raise an issue, which is how do you get people to read something original? Uh, how do you get some somebody to read something that isn't like X meets Y? And I I've never talked to authors about this. I don't know how authors feel about being told by their PR people that their book is
0: X meets Y. Well, they very well may have come up with it. They might have. I mean, I
1: I suspect writers do this in their own pitches. In their yeah.
0: Well, you kind of um, have to because again, it's this thing you're you're tr- particularly before the the, the work exists. One thing you're trying to do is give people an idea of the space it exists in. And yeah. so trying to create some kind of Venn diagram is in some ways the best thing you can do. And also, I mean, like, I've done it. I mean, I've done it. I did it in my, um, year in review piece for the February issue of Locus. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm going, well, this is, this meets that. This is like this and that. This, you know, just to sort of let you as a reader know that it might echo the kind of feeling you got from reading such and such. But yes, I mean, we, we do all need to be careful. I mean, I was going to say that one of the things I learned being edited um, as an anthologist actually was I was much less aware of repetition of words than the average copy editor is. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, if you use the same word twice in a sentence, it wouldn't particularly get me or bother me, but it's the kind of stuff that drives copy editors bananas because you know, they, they circle them all the time, assholes. And yeah. um, I try to be more aware of that kind of thing. I guess the, I,
1: I don't. I don't object to saying that a novel resonates with other novels or other kinds of things you might have read, uh, and I, I I say things like that. I just try to avoid. Maybe an, an example is uh, is Nora Jemison's novel, the, the the city we made, which is it's it's got Lovecraftian and stuff in it, which is very deliberately there. It's got a love letter to New York City in it, which is very much connected with other love letters to New York City over the last 100 years. What it doesn't have is what you really would expect from the Broken Earth trilogy. It doesn't have that large-scale kind of um, historical epic feel to it. So, yeah, you want to try to relate a book to other books that people might be familiar with. It's hard to do that with some – it's hard to do that with – for me, it's always hard to, uh, to describe a Jonathan Carroll novel, for example, in terms of anybody other than Jonathan Carroll. Sure,
0: sure, which probably isn't to his commercial benefit. I think Probably the as- the city we became is an interesting book. I mean, you know, it's one of the, it's a book I've read this year, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to like about it, and I'm still trying to work I mean, do you ever read a book like a book and feel very enthusiastic about it at the end and then in the coming weeks or months just begin to slowly like back off the warmth you had for it as you begin to reassess it in your mind?
1: I've not only done that, I've done exactly the opposite. I've come away from a book with a lukewarm feeling and thinking that was okay, and then uh, six weeks later thinking, wait a minute, that book is sort of sticking in my mind. Mm. Um, I think I think in the city, uh, in, in, in the Jemison novel in particular, it seemed to me to be very much the opening novel of a trilogy. It seemed to me setting out, it in effect was The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, sure. with a, a novel about Getting together your fellowship. So, it, and it ended. I thought rather abruptly, but but I it left me really thinking the next one could be uh, something different and something very uh, very exciting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly agree with this. I mean, I think it's a good book, and I would certainly say to anybody who's interested in reading it, they should read it. I don't think that you can tell yet whether it's an excellent book because it's so clearly part of the, the longer story that it belongs to, and I am hoping that the rest of the story is not as generic as it could be.
1: Of course not, because it's Walt Whitman meets Ralph Ellison meets H.P. Lovecraft.
0: Oh, I'm going to edit you out of the podcast. Okay, it's fine. <laughs> Take it out. <laughs> but um, it, it is kind of, I mean, I'm, and w- we won't revisit this now because we've talked about it at length before, but it does c- continue to surprise me. You no. Know, uh, that lovecraft remains this this touchstone um it's I, I, it doesn't surprise me
1: at all, partly because um lovecraft is a classic problem he is clearly every everything wrong with Lovecraft that everybody has talked about is is well documented, and yet the power of that of that kind of horror is. Equally well documented. As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, this past week I went to see the color out of space. How was it? On, it was. It's not a bad horror movie. It's better than the earlier film version of it, which nobody seems to know called "Die Monster Die" with <laughs> Boris Karloff, I think. Um, and it's it's got some of the elements of the classic Stuart Gordon uh, uh, Lovecraft adaptations. It has Nicholas Cage, and he he Nicholas cages a lot in it. Um, well, yeah, it's fine. Uh, but by and large, it's, uh, and, and it does interesting things uh, with Lovecraft, not unlike what we've seen done with most recently Nora Jimison, but also Victor Laval and, and Kids Johnson and so forth. Um, they're m- one of the major characters, the narrator, who in fact speaks the opening narration, which is word for word the opening narration from Lovecraft's story, is a black hydrologist. Um, and the mayor of the town is black in other words there's a there's a multicultural thing which i don't think in a in terms of a film is intended to be as much of a, uh, a snub at lovecraft as, as as it is in fiction so they've modernized it they've uh, added some uh, elements from uh probably some elements from uh Carpenter's the thing, they've added... But, but there are a lot of Lovecraft references in it. The Necronomicon is in it. Miskatonic University t-shirts are in it. You hear the weather forecast on TV and it's talking about the weather over Innsmouth. So the the setting is, is as an updated thing is, is not bad. It's not a major film. Um, it doesn't do violence to the Lovecraft story. And I think one of the things that people are discovering, and this does go back to this Lovecraft rebuild, as I put it before, is that the story works perfectly well if you replace
0: Lovecraft's attitudes with more humane attitudes. <laughs> Fair enough. So what else have you been reading lately, Gary?
1: A um, couple of interesting things. I were ta- we were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording. I'm, I'm reading a forthcoming novel by, by our friend and sometimes podcast guest, James Bradley uh, called Ghost Species, which is a great title, which, Takes on multiple meanings as you read through the novel. Um, I I just was reading Vagabonds, Hao Jingfang's uh, long, 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 long. And it's, uh, by the way, the promo letter for that says something like, for fans of both science fiction and literary fiction. You want to get another bugaboo going in my mind? Yeah. Literary science fiction? Okay, yeah. Uh, li- anyway, so, yeah. Okay, uh, and but it it's interesting and i want to talk about it more at, at at greater length because one of the things that fascinates me about it is that it's not anything like um the Su lu novels that we've seen or the uh the 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 chin the the stanley Chan novel waste tide and one of the things i've always admired about ken lu uh having no sense whatsoever as to what different styles look like in chinese originals uh that the um the um waste tide didn't feel at all stylistically like um the three body problem for yeah. example uh you could tell those were two different writers even though it was the same translator and and Ken's translation of vagabonds doesn't look like either of those writers so i'm beginning to get enough sense with different novels translated by the same translator, first of all, that Ken has a very good sense of nuance, that he recreates in English whatever the stylistic differences were in Chinese in a way that an English reader can understand. Um, But it also shows strengths and weaknesses, I think, in the original style, and that's what I'm grappling about right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, There are parts of the novel that look a lot like a YA novel, parts of it that seem almost didactic and programmatic, parts of it that are very moving and literary, uh, and very little adventure in it, very, in, in the in the sense of being basically a novel about a group of kids, 18 years old, who have spent five years on Earth. This is 40 years after an Earth-Martian war. And they're returning to Mars. And the title is no secret. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty much evident. They feel vagabonds. They feel without a, a home. They feel at sea. Earth is hyper-capitalist; it's completely profit-driven. Yep. Mars is—it it begins to look a lot like Anaris and, and, and Urus and uh, Lagoon's the dispossessed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, so it's it's a novel which is full of ideas and fascinating. It's not at all like um, Stan Robinson's Mars trilogy. It's not at all like the Moon novels that we've seen from Ian McDonald and John Kessel and others in, in, in recent years. Uh, and I'm still trying to grapple with. Exactly what it is, I guess.
0: Well, did you see, by the way, this, this month, Tor launched their own version of the science fiction masterworks, uh, right. a thing called The Essentials or something, I think it is,
1: with More, two books,
0: were, yeah. China Mountain Zhang and, uh, The Three Californias, the, tri- the trilogy. Of, Cali- f- right. Which, which, I mean, I've not read in a while, but remains a, a fascinating work looking back on it. You know, this experiment I'm, of writing it, stories it, about a place from different angles that way.
1: Well, that, that so. raises the question, really, that I uh, wanted to focus on a little bit in this podcast. And that is, what do you say to somebody who says, I haven't read science fiction since I was 12 and I'd like to get back into it and I want to start reading it? Or somebody who is you have a lot of respect for. They are literate. They read books. They read novels. They want to try science fiction out. Or when you read something like uh, Ian McEwen talking about science fiction being anti-gravity boots at the speed of light or, or, or uh, Margaret Atwood's talking squids in space, what do you want to say to those people that they should read? And the reason I think that's an important question, and I think Kim Stanley Robinson is kind of at the center of the question, is that when I was much younger uh, – your, your response would be automatic anybody's response well you, you got to start Heinlein and Asimov and Clark and Bradbury um, those those are stories that are some of them 80 years old now um, that's not where you'd get into modern science fiction now I know part uh, part of the question is why the person thinks they don't like science fiction and I remember once uh, decades ago a part an instructor that was teaching for me when I was a department chair, said she didn't like science fiction because of its lack of affect, which is something I'd heard before. So I gave her a copy of I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, which is nothing but affect. It's all mm-hmm. affect. Yep. Uh, and she was she was disturbed for a week. <laughs> she, she didn't want to read science fiction because it was too affective and too, too upsetting.
0: I think the answer is is partly the the obvious one, which is you're always going to give people advice in in their own context. You know, like Mm. if someone you know is reading romantic epics by, by, by by preference, then you're going to be in that sort of space. But what you're really asking is what sort of works are the kind of ones that persist to feel modern, and who are the modern authors that you would talk about. And to some degree, it's one of those things where there are a few benchmark. New wave writers whose works survive and look modern in many ways. So if if they're completely new, you still would recommend Le Guin and Wolfe and a few other people. Um, but then you get into Stan Robinson's generation and Michael Swanwick's generation, the, the writers who came through in the 80s, and you're directing them to the Karen Fowlers and to the Stan Robinsons. And then depending on their taste and what they're looking for, maybe through to Greg Bear from that era, and sort of skipping forward like to now, I mean, I do think you're talking about a Nora Jemison or someone like that that you might start with, allowing that I still think that the writers of the last 10 years are sufficiently untested in some ways that we won't know how well we think of them for another 10 years or so but that kind of space and I tend to you like I'll, I'll point someone at some, a book like air say by Jeff Ryman which is a fabulous book and is a serious book and is a literary book and a thoughtful book or I'll point them maybe to 2312 or you know I the, the one thing I would avoid I always try to avoid is pointing anybody at um at uh you know, long series and trilogies and whatever else. So it's all, it's always a bit of a thing when when, when, a, when the best work you know, that the an author has is, is a series.
1: I think that's a problem. And the other thing is I think people who want to get back into something don't want to get into a long series or maybe not even into a trilogy. I mean you're obviously right that in answering the question to somebody that you know, to somebody who's a friend, you want to find out what their interests are. And their interests might very well lead them toward, uh, something like, I don't know, Annalie Newitz's Autonomous, which is for somebody who's interested in that sort of thing. Uh, whether that's characteristic or whether that's going to be read 10 years from now isn't the question. The question is what will appeal to people. Yes. This partly came up because when I was teaching science fiction classes, where you have to try to figure out things that will appeal to students, some of whom are stone fans, this, for some, interesting reason this uh class had two stone ian mcdonald fans in it mm-hmm, which should mm-hmm. have delighted him but there were also uh students from other majors taking it for a lit course that they needed and so one of the things i assigned them was one of gardner dozois anthologies in fact it was his best of the best anthology which was it's a terrific anthology it was there there we should parent- parenthetically say they're like two bests of the best now yeah and the most recent one really isn't the best of the best. the The last one that Gardner did was the best only from the preceding twenty. Yeah, years. Yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah. So so anyway, the uh, half the students found most of the stories in the Gardner Dozois anthology incomprehensible. They had no idea what to do with Greg Egan. Mm. They had no idea what to do with any number of other writers than. Uh, One of the novels I chose because I thought it was a balance between what they would see as literary and what I would see as science fiction was Robert Charles Wilson's spin. Mm -hmm. And they adored it. They loved it. Uh, And I I, I began to realize that one of the things that's a factor now in trying to get people to uh, enter into science fiction as readers is that many of them have a background at least in Star Wars and Star Trek and The Expanse and – Um, maybe Avenue five is a new one. So they have some ideas about science fiction and you don't want to disillusion them completely, but you want to show them that there may be things a little bit more complex and that are literary in the way that the better science fiction films are filmic. If that makes a sense,
0: it is an interesting tightrope to walk to go uh, when you're, because when you're right, once upon a time, people who didn't write, you know, read science fiction were largely oblivious to its tropes and themes
1: mm-hmm.
0: now the vast part of the culture has at least an awareness of them exactly and it's how ha- i mean even you know the, the the small walk from the you know Amazon, amazon's the expanse to james corey's the expanse is yeah. is a walk they're not the same even if it's they're similar ish uh and when you get into you're right, Greg Egan or someone, it's quite a long walk from what you would normally consume. So it is tricky. But, I mean, that that's the nature of recommending books, Gary, isn't
1: it? Well, it's the nature of recommending books, but this is also recommending books where you're, you're recommending books in a defensive mode. This person knows you're involved in science fiction, and they want to know what's wrong with you, and they're willing to – Look at some of the drugs in your cabinet to see if there's anything that might help them.
0: Well, that's I I might I I might cast a different metaphor, Gary. Let's pretend that (laughs) that they know you're a whiskey connoisseur and they want to see what that stuff you've been spending so much money on is. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. Let's do that. And you know, particularly right now, I mean, it's it's you know, it's an interesting time, and there are interesting books to be obsessed with. But it isn't like how do you? I'm trying to think about. Well, how do you introduce? a person on the straight, to the Iron Dragon's mother? Um,
1: I don't know how I w- – I, I, I don't think I'd start with that novel. Hmm. Um, maybe with the Iron Dragon's daughter, but um, I don't know how I'd de- describe that to somebody who hadn't read any fantasy or science fiction because that particular set of novels – is so elusive to different traditions and so knowledgeable and so no, sort of wryly satirical. Um, same thing might be true with, uh, lobby uh, who's, I've, I've got his new novel now and I haven't started it yet, but he's very elusive to science fiction and fantasy. And yet a lot of the reviews I see of his work are completely oblivio- oblivious, oblivious mm. to his elusiveness. Yeah. So yeah. in other words, if a novel is compelling enough, just as a story, um, that's one I'd go for. I'd go for a good story before I'd go for anything else. Yeah. But when you look at, that, I mean, I'm thinking about probably 50 years ago, and I, I, I'm thinking from having read a lot of literary essays about science fiction. I was fascinated at one point in collecting what literati said about science fiction in the 50s and 60s. There was a time when, if somebody said science fiction was illiterate pap, you'd just send them off to read Bradbury yeah. because here was somebody yeah. who paid attention to style and it was poetic and it was sad and all all the virtues of bradbury uh were literary virtues, but then you'd have to explain to them Bradbury was really kind of a lousy science fiction writer no that that's really
0: works <laughs> so, so. I mean, so then, Ray Bradbury was so, so, not in many ways a science fiction writer at all.
1: No, not, not at all. And, and, and so then you're – then you feel guilty because then you're you're trying to pretend, well, let's not give them a good science fiction novel. Let's give them – or science fiction stories. Let's give them science fiction stories that look like the ones they're familiar with so they won't react in a hostile manner to yeah. it. I've had this, I had this reaction uh, – discussion once with a um, uh, Nigerian-American friend of mine about um about Chinua Achebe's novel Things Fall Apart which is the one Nigerian novel that everybody reads in college if you it, it it's, it's 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 you know it, it it's a classic it's a great novel and so forth and so on but the question this this person was the point this person was making was the reason it's so popular among English readers is it's the Nigerian novel that looks most like an English novel yeah Um, And I don't know whether that's true or not, because at that point, I certainly didn't know much about Nigerian fiction. So my question is, do we recommend books to non-readers because we want to sort of show off our genre by recommending books that are more characteristic of literary fiction than of genre fiction? And that brings us back to people like Kim Stanley Robinson, who I think really writes really good novels that are also really good science fiction novels.
0: I think that's true. I mean, I think I try to recommend things that are palatable, that are enjoyable and that I loved. That, you know, that's kind of, I mean, I'm trying to think whether I actually think about it as clearly as you are doing, whether, because, you know, in my day to day life, I don't often get asked to recommend books to people. Mm. And it tends to be more that casual friendly thing rather than how do I structure the, if you like the the, what, the pathogen that's going to infect you with science fiction,
1: yeah, and 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 there's there's a sense that the, the more you know a person, uh, the more you think, oh, this is this is more like a prescription than a recommendation. Like this is a science fiction you need because you are clearly hung up on power fantasies, and you need to have you need, be, you need to be taken down a peg. So
0: let's yeah, I mean, probably um, the one one reality check I give myself recommending a book. Is I do ask myself, is this a book that you are, have to be an insider to enjoy? That you need exactly. to be, that you need yeah. to be. Per, perhaps the better way to put it is heavily contextualized to 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 enjoy. Uh, I wonder whether a book. I mean, like uh, last year, uh, Elizabeth Bear's Ancestral Night was one of the best wow. books of the year. A wonderful spa- uh, space opera science fiction novel, and I I think a broad audience could pick it up cold and get into it but I'd have to stop and think. Um, I'm not sure about Arcady Martin's debut, which I think also is terrific, mm. but I think it helps if you're more immersed in the field and familiar with the field before you read it. The Jemison right. book that we've both just read, uh, The City We Became, uh, I think my only hesitation in recommending that widely would be it's the first the trilogy, uh, but... I think it's accessible. I mean, the Lovecraftiana and stuff that's in it is, well, in fact, you don't need to know anything at all about Lovecraft, you don't need to period. Know at all. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't, you don't need much context or a book like, you know, Riot Baby, the Tochiyan Yabuchi short novel right. where it would have merely helped to have a little bit of knowledge of contemporary American history. And in fact, I would widely recommend that if someone was looking for a way into contemporary genre fiction. You
1: know? Yeah, and I, I I think that those are good points, and I think that there uh, there's a balancing act that writers have to do when they're writing in or against a particular tradition that a successful writer will will achieve. You mentioned, for example, you don't need to know anything about Lovecraft uh, to enjoy Nora Jemison's book. I've talked to a couple of people who had read Kage Johnson's Dream <clears throat> Dream Quest of, of Velvet Bowl without having a clue about the dream quest of unknown Kate, or love. And they thought it was a terrific fantasy. Now they missed a certain dimension of it by not knowing the way it was in dialogue with Lovecraft, but Kidge was a, a skilled enough storyteller to make it a, a, a viable fantasy on its own, I think. Yeah. And I think that is uh, a, a kind of, uh, one of the challenges.
0: Um, I, <clears throat> well, certainly the thing that Kidge was doing and Nora does it in a very different way. They're not, Mm-hmm. similar, uh, it, it was, is that she was well, skilled enough and clear enough that, n- that none of the story turned on what she was doing. Exactly. You know, uh, so all of the, I mean, the references, you know, whatever else were, they were there and they were, they, there were additional resonance, but they weren't the key to it at all. And in fact, this is one of my bugbears about some things, particularly on the broad, uh, cultural stage, where you have something where you need to have the bit of arcane knowledge to appreciate what the thing is. Uh, and I think that's always a mistake.
1: I don't know. I, I, I agree. And I think that one of the things that uh, that I enjoyed, speaking of the, the broader cultural stage, uh, I read Watchmen, I think, a long, long time ago. I don't frankly remember all the details from it. And when the, uh, the TV series of Watchmen came on HBO, which was completely reimagining it, and okay, I recognized a lot of the elements from, but the point is, uh, that was a powerful mini series if you had no idea mm-hmm. what Alan Moore had done. Yeah. And, uh, and, and my sense from what I'd read is that Alan Moore really didn't want you to know what he had done because he didn't no. like it much. But he, uh, it, 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 it certainly, it was, for me, that series was a much more rewarding kind of uh, narrative. Then the old film of The Watchmen was, which was sort of a illustrated version, messed up version of the comic books. And if you didn't know the comic books, you didn't know what they were messing up and, and you're left with just basically a mess. Um, it's
0: true. It's true. Um, not that I've seen, I have to say, I've still not seen HBO's The Watchmen. So it's on my, on my to watch list, Gary, hmm. which is, on, no, no, it's not as long as my to read list, which is kind of what I just keep <laughs> glancing over at every now and again to my left. It's where the to read list sits. Ah, and, and so, I have uh, a to read list over there too. Yeah. Well, yours is bigger than mine because people send you books, Gary.
1: I, yes, they do. And most of them are not books that I want, but I don't want to, I, I don't want to sound, <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. They're, 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 they're always, they're always sending me books that are meeting other
0: books. <laughs> what often on the way back out the door?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Actually, no. I, I, I shouldn't I, 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 joke I, it, because I know it's expensive upsets. for publishers to do it. And it we genuinely some... – I have to be really serious. <laughs> Just in case you're listening from a publishing house, we genuinely appreciate you sending us the books. No, no,
1: really. It's it's absolutely true. We really love having these books come in the house in increasingly unopenable envelopes. But that's another issue. Um, I mean maybe not the second and third copies. That sometimes is a little bit tiresome. No. Well, the, the, the thing is no, – being PR in in the publishing industry has got to be a challenging job these days. Oh yeah, you're you're trying to sell physical copies of books. You're trying to you're trying to sell paperback. I get emails. Uh, the, this book. Well, uh, here's an interesting interesting marketing problem, and I don't know how they're going to handle it. Uh, you mentioned that Tor is doing the Tor essentials. China mm-hmm. Mountain Zhang is a great novel. Uh, the uh, The Three Californias is one of the foundational books you could say of the last. Thirty years in, in science fiction and if you're looking for some uh aspect of more or less optimistic science fiction which i sometimes get asked about stan robinson is an interesting person to think about but how do you sell novels that uh were
0: published before some of your target audience was even born i don't know you have to start i, and I was just trying to think what you would say about china Ch- mountain saying i don't even know what what meets what you would 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 say
1: but oh, yeah, but it's 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 a, it's a classic novel by a writer by Marine. It's been a great. It's been a very strong writer ever since him. But that was still probably the most famous novel should should written, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love to see it back in print. I hope people will go out and read it. But I don't know what will make people read it. Does it? Is it?
0: Well, I think it's going to come down. I mean, I think. Well, I think it is. Not primarily aimed at the ma- you know the the mass audience. It's it's an it's at the same same group who pick up the masterworks, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I don't know how those sort of things are handled these days in American bookstores because I never get the, you know, go into them. Uh, but here we still have you know bookstores who the way they one of the ways they deal with having a science fiction section is to order everything in the Golan's Masterworks and just put them in there numerically and let people go through them.
1: Well, of course, we don't get that in the States at all. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah.
0: Actually, so, let me so ask what you what about you a, pu- a publishing thing, which uh, was uh-huh. an issue this week. Did you follow the Barnes & Noble fiasco? Uh,
1: the putting new covers on classic American literature? Mm-hmm. I. It was one of those things where the minute I saw the image, first of all, I thought, this is a joke. This is somebody who's who's making a parody of Black History Month and it's in bad taste. And then I realized, no, they actually did that. And apparently, they did not do it for national distribution. Apparently, only that one bookstore. But it's putting putting a blackface Ahab on Moby Dick, for example. How is that different from putting a white face on the front of um, uh, what was the first Octavia Butler novel that had? A
0: white carry, yeah. It's it just strikes me as being absolutely bizarre. It's a very strange thing to do, and I'm surprised that they were only for the bookstore. That doesn't sound like it. I mean, they went to a lot of trouble. I mean, they they did the whole kind of they were all what scanned by some kind of program to see that whether there's any descriptions in the books that that uh-huh. specifically referenced racial characteristics, and if they didn't, then they just put these covers on them. Now, somebody said something which I think is true. If you had created those covers as an illustration that you used at the presentation of mm. how the world could have looked if stories were more diverse at the time and then use it as an entryway to actually highlight works from people of color, I can see how that actually genuinely works. Right. Right. What I don't see is how you can be so divorced from reality that you can't see how outrageous and offensive it is to do that. You know, it was just quite, quite a a mind numbingly clueless thing to have done.
1: Well, it it, it was, it was done without having any sense of, of, for that matter, what was actually in the novels because I looked, I, I, I don't have it in front of me now. One of the, one of the books was Moby Dick and it looked to me like, The character was Ahab in blackface. There's an important black character. Queequeg is an important black character in Moby Dick. It's a problematical character, but he's actually one of the more heroic characters. And there's an argument to be made to look at that novel from Queequeg. is described as a South Sea Islander, I believe. He's black, but it's not clear what his lineage is that I recall. Um, It's an interesting character to... Okay, if you find a a black character in a novel and want to foreground that character, that's interesting. But this is simply ignoring what characters were in the novel entirely. I think another one might have been The Great Gatsby, which is just bizarre. Um, It it, it makes you wonder. Again, uh, I feel sorry for people. I feel not sorry for them. I feel sympathetic with the difficulty of marketing books these days. I feel that there's uh, a legitimate interest in trying to market uh, books to a more diverse audience but by now we have lots and lots of diverse writers it was one of the things we talked about uh in our yearly wrap-ups for locus magazine you know you don't have a hard it's, it's not really hard to find science fiction and fantasy by a very diverse group of writers international writers racially diverse lgbtq writers uh it's those books are there so what are you doing trying to sort of pretend that The Great Gatsby has any black characters in it?
0: I just genuinely don't know. But, you know, it does It does highlight that, you know, the strides that we hope we're making and that at times, possibly on this podcast, we pat this field on the back for having made are only the beginnings of small strides. They're not actually having fundamentally changed things.
1: Well, no, but it does go back to the question of uh, we were asking a while a while ago, which still kind of bothers me a little bit, and that is, what do you recommend uh, to somebody who doesn't think science fiction addresses their needs? And it's interesting because starting about three years ago, the novel I usually would recommend was Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Mm-hmm. You get halfway through that novel and you get terrified. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody who's never read science fiction before gets into the novel and it utterly terrifies them, and they want to know how to get out of this. Uh, unfortunately, Octavia didn't finish the third volume in the trilogy, so we don't really know. But nevertheless, a novel like that becomes an entry level science fiction novel now, whereas ten years ago, maybe it would have been, maybe not. Mm. It's
0: a, yeah. It look yeah. It's interesting, and the. Uh, it's all from obviously going to be from your own reading perspective as well. I mean, like I don't think I would have recommended parable of the Sower for the reason that you, you know, you mentioned, I actually still would be recommending adulthood rights, which I don't hear enough about. And which was a series that I adored and thought was brilliant. But yeah,
1: I think that's true. And I, I I think that the, uh, uh, the, 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 parable series obviously has connections to contemporary American life. So the the reason, the reason that came to mind was because the argument I was getting back then, which is an argument we've all heard over the years, that science fiction deals with space colonies and interstellar travel and space opera. It doesn't have anything to do with my life. So uh, fortunately uh, Butler had written a novel very early on, well not early on in her career, which really nobody can say that doesn't have to do with my life. Uh, It's, 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 it's right, right now, in my mind, that is the most terrifying science fiction novel of the last 30 years, (laughs) simply because 1984 came and went, you know. Uh, It wasn't so bad, but we don't know where we're going yet. Brave New World, Brave New World is like, it's not so bad.
0: (laughs) Well, actually, I mean, that was the thing. As part of the celebration of the publication of Three Californias, Stan Uh Robinson has been interviewed around the place yeah. and anybody who has been reading the project that is Stan Robinson's writing career knows that at the heart of it lies a utopian vision. Yes. You know, a desire for improvement. And at the end of this interview that I stumbled across, he was saying that, you know, when it comes down to what science fiction is for and what science fiction should be doing, finding ways to retain hope, and I don't mean being you know, the whole hope punk, but you know, la 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 land stuff. Yeah. But actually, ways to look at the world and see what a utopia could be. I mean, he was saying one of the big changes in his life is that what do you just getting most of us alive to the end of the century and have mm-hmm. the climate approaching some kind of stability where things won't fall apart completely would be a new utopia almost.
1: Well, it would be, but I think he's shifted also. And I think one of the things that he—I think he is an optimistic writer, but he shifts expectations from the novel. One of the novels I taught in—I did a course on sustainability and literature, and we, uh, at Stan's suggestion, we did the second novel, *The Science in the Capital* trilogy. But that that trilogy from what twenty some years ago now, um, was clearly a warning about we need to do something about the global warming issue it was about politics it was about the national science foundation it was a policy novel Mm. that wanted to influence our thinking about policy now you compare that novel uh, and washington gets inundated in it and i think san diego falls into the ocean at one point compare that to new york 2312 that novel held out hope that maybe the new president a new liberal president would do something about it there was a chance to make changes that were necessary By the time of New York 2312, those changes have not happened. New York is underwater. A a large part of the worst of what we thought was going to happen has happened. And he writes a novel about ways in which we survive that and sort of recreate both the best and worst of our economic and social institutions uh, in the the face of disaster. So his, his argument is that we are, I think, a survivalist species. We will find ways to make make do with the worst kind of disasters but it seems to me that 20 years ago he was more concerned about avoiding those disasters and now he's concerned about coping with them
0: i yeah i think that's true there is that realist you know thread yeah uh, and we are in a mitigation thing let me ask you something as well because it just you know, came to mind while you're talking about mm-hmm. science of the capital what do mm-hmm. you think of th- what he did with uh, that trilogy with green earth where he went back and re-edited them together and changed the text and all that kind of thing, revisiting them a decade after they were published.
1: I, well, I, I talked to him before he did it, and I've not read the redone thing, which is – it's like science it's, – it's like the mm. uh, the Three Californias, a gigantic book. Um And he he was concerned he had some of the science wrong in it some of the things about the Gulf Stream that he thought was going to happen didn't happen and so forth so I think he wanted to correct the science I don't know if he corrected the basic attitudes of those books no
0: I I also my recollection was he felt that they it wandered a bit I mean he cut a chunk out of it apparently yeah to make it a leaner tighter read at a thousand (laughs) and seventy pages or something
1: well he he did and 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 i i I, like i say i didn't read it to see what he cut one of the things that does strike me is that there are characters in those novels from reading them many years ago frank i can't remember his last name um that are just memorable characters and i know again what he was doing was balancing this business of um of, of, of writing realistic fiction it was interesting my students reaction to that they liked it and a couple of them said why is this science fiction because they didn't know enough about what was going on in the world to realize he was making stuff up yeah yeah uh, yeah so in other words uh he may have cut out some of the more character-based stuff but there, there were some wonderful characters in that And we should say one of the things that when i recommend a writer to somebody is i want to know if they can write characters yeah and 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 stan had some very memorable characters in that i can i can remember characters from his mars trilogy not all of them certainly but uh Uh, but enough. Uh, I I was thinking about that the other day, that there are really colorful characters uh, in science fiction who are memorable, not because
0: of what they do science fictionally, but because in any novel, these would be really good characters. It does occur to me, to actually wonder, I mean, Red Moon's a year and a half ago now, Mm -hmm. so I'm wondering what Stan's doing. We should probably chase him down and find out. We should chase him down and find out what he's doing and whether he's... Uh Why well, I I I know
1: he's it, he he also introduced the idea going back to the 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 solar system novel, um, of re, of, of terraforming Earth, uh, because it was it was it was becoming un- that's become it's becoming almost a convention in science fiction. You see that idea showing yeah. up in other novels now.
0: That it's going to be uh, easier so. and better to fix what we've broken than to find something new. Exactly. Yeah. Which which um, strikes me as markedly sane, actually. Um. Yeah, I mean, and if you were to say to me, which science fiction writer has shaped your thinking more than any other in the last 25 years, for me it would be Stan Robinson.
1: I think my thinking about, you're right, probably thinking about policy and about the future and about environment certainly, uh, even the New Yorker four or five years ago said he was our best environmental novelist, uh, the New Yorker, which is now Running profiles of William Gibson and Nora Jimison, and uh, who's the latest one uh, yeah uh, well,
0: Joanna Russ Joanna Russ um, did we talk about that last time I think we did I
1: mean, we may have mentioned it that they they had a, a, a profile of Joanna Russ which which mentioned you- Gwyneth Jones's book but the but the point I'm making is that uh, the the staff writers of the New Yorker before they were in their current fit of enjoying science fiction uh, Recognize that Stan Robinson's novels appealed as novels. They're, they're novels of ideas. They're issue novels yeah. of a kind that's not really um, au courant in terms of literary circles. The kinds of things that in the Victorian era you'd have prison novels, you'd have novels about poverty, you'd have novels about the justice system. Uh, Dickens wrote one of each. Um, and that happens less and less. I mean, it happens with some bestsellers. You'll find all kinds of legal issues addressed in john grisham novels and so forth and so on but stan writes novels of policy and novels yeah. of ideas that are meant to change people's thinking and uh, i think it is best he does change thinking you're right he shaped my thinking uh, yeah. as much as any writer about these issues
0: yeah i mean i'm t- almost tempted to try and redo something that we did a long time ago at the 2014 london worldcon we had a panel with bob silverberg and joe walton and Someone and else, maybe Stan was it somebody else. Stan was on it, Stan well, was on that. That was the most disappoint. uh, that's where I asked the most disappointing question of my entire podcasting career.
1: Where, Which
0: was? what is science fiction for? Uh huh. And uniformly I was given a kind of disappointing answer, you know, it's like, oh, it's not for anything, it's entertainment, you know, kind of thing. And I'm going, it's such a bullshit answer because when you look at it and when you listen to people people pl- who are serious about writing science fiction plainly do think it's for something i mean yes yeah you know reading is entertainment and all those kind of things and that's valid but it ha- i mean it may not be for one thing and it may be that, that what science fiction is for for one writer is different mm-hmm. than what it is for another writer which is what i thought you were going after that question
1: I but thought you'd get different everybody
0: d- ditched the question frankly yeah uh and I mean, you would think if you were watching, say, Stan's career from the outside, it is for mounting an argument that the future is to live in.
1: You know, I think that's true. I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it. That, 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 that at least that we need to find ways of living in the future. I, th- I think, it, as I say, it's changed over time. Although, I admit, some of Stan Robinson's novel stories from 30 years ago haunt me today. Like Venice Drowned is. Yeah, it's just wonderful. It's story. Happening. Yeah. a wonderful story, but it's like, okay. Um, but even then, he was dealing with the issue of scuba diving in Venice to find, you know, find the treasures. In other words, he was saying his concern is, I think, on the one hand, how do we make a better future? And it's increasingly, and I think science fiction increasingly, hasn't quite given up on that, no. but has more or less moved into the mode of... How do we deal with the future that we've got? Because we're we're past the tipping point.
0: Yeah, I I want to circle around. We're almost at the end of our time. I want to circle around for a minute to the New Yorker article we mentioned because I don't think we did Mm -hmm. talk about the Joanna Russ article last last time because we we were on our new fortnightly schedule. uh, Mm -hmm. So I think we, we we skipped it. And I was interested to read it, but what was fascinating to me, I mean, apart from the fact that. It actually, there actually is an article about Joanna Russ in the New Yorker, which wow. I actually made me think of you, Gary, because of all my friends, you're the one who most talks about the divide between literary and science fiction. Um, mm. overwhelmingly more than anyone I know. Uh, and so that made me think about you. And then I thought, well, hang on. How, how bad can this barrier be when they're talking about uh-huh. Joanna Russ in the New Yorker, right? You know, it's like, it's the New Yorker in the article. I don't know if you recall, and I should try and dig out a link for the show notes, I guess. There are mm. links from there to the online archive of Joanna Russ's letters. So mm. you can read her original letters. And there is the correspondence between her and James Tiptree Jr., uh, Alice Sheldon, and specifically the correspondence of the exact moment when Sheldon tells Russ that Tiptree is Sheldon. And then yeah, the correspondence that followed. And wait. it's fascinating, and it's fascinating to, to, to read – The the way Russ looked at it, the way Russ corresponded with Samuel Delaney about it. Right. um, And uh, how they saw Tiptree and then reconsidered Tiptree once they knew who who Tiptree was. It's quite a fascinating thing and and, and wonderful to be able to find it online. And I have to say, made me think at the end of it all, and I recommend you go to the article, read the article. it, It references... Uh, Gwyneth Jones's book, Joanna Russ, which I also recommend highly and I can because mm-hmm. I didn't edit it, unlike Gary, but it's a terrific book and, it's deserves, also a book and deserves your serious Hugo uh, nomination consideration deserve, no, very genuinely. Absolutely. I mean, if, if I were to say just a, a, a scrambly kind of a thing, the two books that are definitely on my personal Hugo ballot for reference work or related work are Gwyneth's book, Joanna mm-hmm. Russ. And Farah Mendelssohn's The Pleasant Profession of Robert Heinlein, uh, both of which I think were probably the m- more interesting, uh, nonfiction books I read about science fiction last year.
1: And one book I, I, those are on my list too, and one book I've not seen yet, but I hope to see before the deadline is over is Adam Roberts' book on H.G. Wells, mm-hmm. which I assume will deal substantially with his science fiction but there's a lot more to deal with there mm. one thing i wanted to mention about the the new yorker about, about the gwyneth jones's book uh, which this is mentioned in the new yorker article uh, gwyneth has a very interesting whole chapter devoted to the what was i think called the kataru symposium the symposium mm. of fan letters it would have been an online discussion except it was and it, it was it was tip and 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 Le Guin and russ and jeff smith and samuel r delaney i believe uh, at a time when nobody knew who uh, who Tiptree was, and it is an absolutely fascinating discussion of what amounted to the foundations of a, of a, of a feminist approach to science fiction that uh, became more and more important. I think, and I think it actually changed Le Guin's thinking a little bit yeah. uh, during that. So it's, it's 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 kind of a fascinating thing, and I think it is um, very encouraging that the New Yorker is doing features on uh, on on Russ or on Jemison or on Gibson uh, and I think a, a better sign is that the author of this article had actually read a couple of Russ's novels Yeah, um, there was a profile of Neil Gaiman maybe 10 years ago uh, where it was clearly a celebrity profile and the, the author had I think read Sandman and probably not read more than one or two of Neil's novels I think he
0: might have been disappointed, and I was disappointed. In it. Don't you so remember when they were universe. writing that? Did you, huh? did you remember that we were in Denver in 2008? Oh,
1: I, I remember meeting the author. I remember her asking me to send a bunch of stuff. I was. Mm. I, did, you, did you talk to her as well? Yeah. Um, and and it turns out none of what I sent her ended up in the article. So it goes. Uh, anyway, but we're at the, the end of our that, hour, Gary. Okay, we are. Um, but the, I guess I guess the point there is that today's New Yorker is not your father's New Yorker.
0: No, that that is true and
1: that's probably a good thing. Um, it is. It may be your grandfather's New Yorker though, because remember the New Yorker published Shirley Jackson. Uh
0: true. Okay. On that cheery one, we will go, we'll come back in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about something else then. Might even I might even have read another book. Who knows? Anything's possible. You might have got to the end of Vagabonds. I might know what the
1: ending is, but I'm not gonna give it away. <laughs> well until then. This has been the Coot Street Podcast. Yay!